All right, <clears throat> let's jump into today. First, I want to start by celebrating. We have, at least as far as I can tell, nine baptisms that took place last Sunday. Nine people giving their lives to Christ at baptism. And um, we have some more coming in, getting scheduled. So just want you to know, if you were here last week or listened online and you're just curious, we have actually a, a thing on the website. You can go fill out a form and say, hey, I'd like to be baptized in the service or after the service or even during the week. You know, we could do it during the week. It's okay. We can open these doors. We'd love to have you surrender to Christ. It's not too late. It's never too late to make that decision. But with that, now the question is, let's just say that many of you or the majority of you have a faith in Jesus Christ. So the question is, what do we do now? Now, many of you came to faith in Christ. Maybe you were a kid. You're coming back now. Or maybe you just, in the last couple years, kind of connected with Jesus, and you're going all in with him. And the question is still the same for all of you. So what now? Great. It's like, I entered a race. Now what? And what I want to do today is tell you one of the major now what components of your faith. This is true for every single believer. We're going to start by looking at 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 2, so if you have a Bible, open it. If you use a digital Bible, open it. I don't know what to do there. If you want to download our app, all these verses will be in there. It'll be on the screen, or if you want, there's a Bible in front of you, and you can grab that one. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, it says this. May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. This is such a simple verse. This is something you could easily tag and put on a Facebook right now. Put hashtag Kingsway Christian Church. No, really, you could. Anyway, this is a huge verse because what Peter gives us in a nutshell is he gives us a glimpse of what God wants from you. What he wants is more and more grace in your life. You know what that means? When you came to faith in Jesus, it wasn't just like enough grace to get you to the starting line. It was enough grace to carry you to the finish line. So recently, and I've talked about this a little bit, I've made a new friend in our community. And uh, my friend is an LDS man, meaning he's Mormon, and he's in the very early stages of that. My friend's story, I don't have his permission to share, but I cannot wait for our continued conversations. And I'm hopeful he never pulls out of our conversations. But this week, what we started to talk about really in depth for the first time is the significant differences that exist between the Mormon gospel and the Christian gospel. And the root, if you go look this stuff up, the root of the Mormon gospel is a works-based salvation. You may be sitting there thinking, why would I care about this? Well, maybe you don't, except for that maybe you have the same view and a different kind of wrapping, a different covering. My friend, as we get deeper and deeper, and I start asking him probing questions, so what happens if you sin? Like, just theoretically. And he said, well, I have to repent. And I said, what does that mean to you? And they have these nine steps of repentance. In fact, I even went and looked up on their website a quote by one of their religious leaders, a guy named Brigham Young, and it talks about in that quote how you must have unceasing prayers, you must shed many, many tears, and you must continue to walk in the goodness. And if not, then according to their teachings, and I can't even quote the exact place, if you sin again, all of your previous sins come back on you. And I said to my friend, how is that good news? How is it good news if every time you do rebel against God, which is not good, I mean, that's not okay, but how is it good news if everything you've ever done comes back on you? 
What Peter is trying to lay and as I'm trying to lay out for him is this understanding that when you walk in faith, you are walking in grace. It is begun in grace, it is sustained in grace, and it carries you to the end in grace. And as Peter is saying, may you have more and more grace and peace because your peace in this life doesn't come from working harder. Your peace in this life doesn't come from shedding more tears or doing more good things. Your peace in this life comes from a right relationship with your heavenly Father and knowing no matter what happens next, whether you made the right decision or the wrong decision, you rest, you rest in him. I don't know if you know this. So if you're visiting with us today, you got to know this. Did you know that God is a God of rest? So in the creation story, and there's almost like two stories, there's like a zoomed out version and a zoomed in version. Chapter one, we find that God creates in seven days. And look, that's a whole phenomenal conversation. One day, I hope we get to have, did he do it in seven days? Did it take longer? And that's for another day. But for now, for the biblical purposes, let's understand part of what God is doing. And we are told through each of those seven days, I don't know if you've ever read this, it was what and then what? It was evening and then it was morning. Now, when you begin your day, how does your day begin? Does your day begin with morning and then evening or evening and then morning? Now, I'm going to guess because you live in America like I do, your day begins with morning. And you get up and you are go, go, go. First thing you do is you turn off the alarm for the 50th time. The second thing you do is you pull out your phone and see if anybody said anything interesting on Facebook yet and if the world is awake yet. Some of you are like, how does he know? (laughs) Then you move on and you got to get your cup of coffee, the first of five before noon. Then you go on to work or school or to running around and cleaning and chores and all those things that we do to keep ourselves busy. And then finally, at the end of the day, you're exhausted and you collapse in bed only to watch TV for another couple hours. And finally, you fall asleep. Now, the biblical pattern is evening and then morning, not morning and then evening. You may be going, why is this relevant? Because God is a God of rest. In God's creation, the day began with rest, not with work. Are you with me? Then you start to study this concept of sabbatical, which is blowing my mind, when the elders came to me and said, Matt, we think it'd be good for you to take a sabbatical. We make every staff member do this. I went, how's the church going to survive without me? And they went, this is why you need a sabbatical. (laughs) To learn again that this is not your church. That's not really what they said, but that's what went through my heart. And I started studying sabbatical, and I found that every six years in the seventh year, the Israelites were told, don't work for one year. And it blew my mind. How are we going to not work for a year? And God said, because I'm going to take care of you. And you're going to see again that all of creation is under my sovereign rule and that I'm the one doing it. So you could take a really deep breath and just exhale. But how would you know any of this if you weren't able to grow in your knowledge of Jesus? But what's really interesting is you go back to that same story in Genesis. We find on day six, God made Adam and Eve, male and female, he made them. Now, chapter two then zooms in and takes the close view and says, now let's talk about this making of the male and the female. And when we zoom in for a minute, and there's a ton of questions that I have, probably like you do too, but again, they're for another day. I'm just going to ask you to set them aside and not get distracted by them. But in chapter two, we find that God made Adam first, and he breathed life into his body after pulling his body together 
together from the dirt and spirit entered flesh. And now the two are combined into one and we have this thing called man. And God gives Adam a task. Adam, I want you to work today and your job is going to be to name the animals. And Adam goes off and, and we don't know exactly what animals are there, but look, there's a male elephant and a female elephant and a male lion and a female lion and a male dog and a female dog or whatever the animals were that he named. But as Adam names these animals, he becomes lonely, it says. And do you know why he's lonely? Because there's nobody like him. This has always been fascinating to me. How can Adam have a right relationship with God? There's no sin in the picture. We're told that God comes out of heaven and walks on earth, just like Jesus did, walks with Adam in the garden, and yet everything up to this point is good, 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 even very good, except for now we get Adam, and literally the first time in the entire Bible we're told this is not good, not good, that Adam is alone. And you need to know, it wasn't like God went, why didn't we think of this one, guys? Duh, he needs an Eve. God was doing a few things. Number one, for all of history, he wanted us as people to know God never built you to be alone. God never built you to be in isolation. All of the Bible is written in a relationship. And part of the reason I say that is because our God is a triune God. And this is really deep and philosophical and just need to try to wrap your head around this. And if not, then just hang on to the truth and explore it as you read your Bible. But think about this. God has never been alone. If you go look at any of the other God's options out there, at some point they were alone if they were a creator God. Even Allah, he alone was God, they say. And so at some point he created But that meant for a season of time, he was isolated, whatever that was. Our God has never, the God has never been isolated. He's always been Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three and yet one. We cannot refer to God as they because they're so one. Even then I said they are so one. God is one. He's always been in community. And when he created Adam, Adam was alone and God said, this isn't good. Our creation was supposed to be like us, so God made Eve. I think the other reason, by the way, that's just a little extra nugget for today. It's not today's focus. I think it's because men, more than women, struggle with isolation. Come on, men. Your wives, for the most part, love being with other people, right? I mean, they can't even go to the bathroom by themselves. (laughs) You just want to go to the bathroom by yourself, Somebody told me there's an app out there, and if you download the app, it's like a test for men. Like, which stall do you take? Because you know if there's five, right, the guy has to take one of the ends. And then the next guy in, he has to take the other end. And then the next guy in has to take the middle. And the next guy in has to wait in line. (laughs) Right? And you don't talk. I personally like to mess with men. I walk in and just start talking like, what are you doing right now? (laughs) Hi, my name is Matt. I don't care. Some things I plan on saying, some things I don't plan on saying, and maybe wish I had. All right. So we were never created to be alone, but here's the thing. See, you may be wondering, where is this alone thing coming from? But see, we are tempted at every turn to live our lives in isolation. Have you ever noticed that? Now, maybe not complete isolation, because it's easy to call up a buddy and say, hey, you want to hang out tonight? It's easy to get together with a friend or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a spouse But there's something in us that cries out not to do life alone. And yet there's something in us that is absolutely terrified to be alone. 
or to be with others. Do you ever feel at war with yourself? Do you ever feel like you're doing this? I really want to get to know you. Just don't come any further than that. Did you know right after Adam and Eve sin, the very next thing they do is they jump into the bushes. We are told throughout chapter 2 that they are naked and unashamed. And yet as soon as sin enters the picture, they're suddenly very insecure to be in each other's presence. And they jump into the bushes. And the next thing they do is they tie together fig leaves to cover themselves. Then as I talk about often, God comes down, he kills an animal, and he covers them with the clothing of an animal. And now their shame and their pain is hidden. But what's happened is we've carried from the garden through every progressive generation down to today that same shame, that same pain, that same insecurity that says, if I'm willing to, and this is totally metaphoric, but if I'm willing to get naked with someone else, to open up my life, to expose my heart, to be known and to know, what will they think? What would people feel? And so we've all come up with these various, uh, I don't know what to call it, behaviors, so that we could keep people at bay. We get people who talk really fast. Just keep the conversation going so that maybe they won't slow down enough to get to know me. Or maybe the person who works really hard looks really good on the outside, so nobody will ever think to ask me how I'm doing. Or the person who's constantly busy, right? Just go, 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 go. Or you get the platitudist. I just made that up. The person who's got all the platitudes. Good things come to those who wait. Tough times don't last, but tough people do. And all they're really doing is keeping you at bay just long enough so that you quit asking. There's probably a whole bunch of others. There's the withdrawal person, right? The person who pulls away in isolation, afraid to be known or to be loved. And you know, if I were to just give a list of every single one that I've ever seen, you'd know. You're like, yep, that's me. Or you're sitting next to somebody and you're like, <clears throat> I don't, sorry, I don't know what happened there. Some of you even right now have somebody in mind. And you just need to know, see, this is a byproduct of the fall of sin. But the other thing you need to know is faith is a game changer. See, Christ came to be the true covering for us. When we read last week that what happens in baptism is we take off the old clothes and we put on the clothing of Christ, what we're trying to get there is a picture. In the garden, we were covered. All we did is hide our shame and insecurity and sin. But when Christ came, he removed our sin and our shame. More and more grace is ours. This brings us peace so that we can stand purified in Christ, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything he's done. His work is finished. His work is complete. Now I strive for purity in my life because he's already given me purity in my life. I'm not striving for purity to be pure. I'm striving for purity because Christ has redeemed me. He saved me. He's made me one with him. But what happened in this moment is God took us out of hiding and out of isolation, and he moved us into the glorious light of Jesus Christ. That's why you see, and go read verse 1. You see in 1 Peter, may God give you more and more grace as you grow in your knowledge. But then he transitions this whole you conversation to an hour. 
Where does this come? Through our Lord. Now, wait a minute. You were saying you grow, you mercy, you grace, you peace. Yeah, but there's a collective you involved in this. Now, watch what happens as we keep going. Now, here's the thing I want you to hang on to right now. Real community, real community is at the heart of God. And I want to talk more about what that looks like, but I just want you to get that. That's where we're going. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. Everything we need. Notice us and we. You're going to hear it throughout this. We have all received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given who? Us, great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share in his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. There is a blending of the you and the us. There is no isolation in you and us. When you step into faith, you've stepped into what the Bible commonly calls a body, literally called the body of Christ. And the intention of that language is that we, the church, the gathering of his people, would literally be his representation on this earth. And so therefore, we are called to work as a body. If one part of your body is off, does everything else notice? You ever sprain an ankle? How about teeth pain? I'm convinced that any pain near your brain is the worst. Because you just can't think straight. You ever have just one little Say, sore in your mouth of some sort, you bite your cheek, ruins the whole day. Like you can't eat, you can't talk, and you want everybody to know. Well, guess what? The body is like this too. If one part of us is off, we all feel it. Now, you can push through and you can make it. And there are churches all over the place that do this. But sooner or later, it catches up. Because one hurt part, one off part leads to other parts, leads to other parts. You ever sprain an ankle? You know what happens over time? You walk funny. You start to walk funny. What happens? The rest of the body gets off. Then the ankle may heal, but then it takes time to retrain the rest of the body. And this happens all the time in churches. As we struggle to understand the me and the we component of this thing called faith. But understand this, God never created you to live in isolation. And what he was doing in the church is creating, theoretically, this beautiful community of extremely messy lives being joined together. See, one thing you need to know right now, if you're visiting with us and you're just not sure about this thing called Jesus, there's not a single person in this room who doesn't have issues. Everybody in here should go, yes. But instead, everybody goes, you're not going to tell them mine, are you? Because that's how it goes, right? I mean, okay, so let me just test this for a second. If I were to say, uh, for instance, I just talked to somebody in our church a couple weeks ago, and here's their story. There's some of you in the room start getting real squirmy real quick, don't you? I hope he's not going to tell mine. You'd probably be surprised if you were to know everything going on in the lives of the people sitting all around you right now. Now, today, in our culture, we have this tattoo I see all the time. It says, only God can judge me. Anybody in here got that tattoo? Don't raise your hand. It's okay. (laughs) It's a very popular tattoo, and there's a truth in it, by the way, because really, God is the only judge. In fact, Jesus is literally the only judge. However, that tattoo is intended to do this. You stay out of my life. You stay out of my business. I don't know who you think you are to tell me what to do or how to do it, but you're not qualified. God is the only one qualified. And there's a truth in that. But there's a deeper truth that the scriptures teach us. In fact, Jesus literally says, be careful 
That as you look at the speck of wood in your brother's or sister's eye, that you first don't ignore this massive redwood tree growing out of your own eye. And we use that often to say then, see, don't judge other people. And there's a truth in that. The scriptures tell us not to judge, but you got to push through a verse and put it in the context of the whole Bible because the rest of what the Bible says, take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 6, and 7. It says believers are not to judge those outside the church, but they are to judge those inside the church. Well, Paul, did you not listen to Jesus? And Paul's only building on exactly what Jesus said because the rest of what Jesus said, and stick with me here before you all get anxious, the rest of what Jesus said in that passage is first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll be able to see clearly to help your brother with his speck. What Jesus is doing is saying, you are so focused on your brother or your sister or that other person and all their junk, you're ignoring your own junk. Why don't you take a deep breath, deal with your junk, and then you'll be able to see clearly. You'll know the path to help them with their junk. And by the way, their junk isn't as big as your junk. And if you think their junk is bigger, it's because you're being arrogant and puffed up and judgmental. Now, what Paul is building on when he gets to that in 1 Corinthians is he's saying the reason we judge in the body of Christ is not a condemnation. He's building on this concept. But we are to discern each other's lives in such a way that says, look, brother, sister, you're going down an unhealthy path. I love you too much to see you self-destruct. It is all wrapped in this mercy and this peace that comes when we have an open relationship instead of a guarded one, a one that says, I love you too much too, fill in the blank. And every conversation I'm having with you from there is building on that, and that's what God is trying to build in his church. And when you went into the waters of baptism, you weren't just getting saved so that you could sit and celebrate what God is doing elsewhere. He was calling you to the front lines of community. God is rebuilding the garden in the church. And it won't be complete until heaven comes, but we're to practice heaven on earth. And ooh, baby, do you know what that's worth? Sorry. Some of you are too young or too old. I go the other way, I guess. <laughs> This is what God is doing. But here's the thing, right? It's terrifying. Just recently I had a conversation with a friend and um, talking about these kind of concepts. And they shared with me. They're terrified of doing this. Again. Because they did it once. And the way that it was handled was so poorly done. They were shared some vulnerabilities, some struggles, some life situations. What they needed more than anything was encouragement and support, perhaps some truth, but wrapped in grace. And instead, what they got was a Christian family pulling away from them. And I'm going to guess that some of you are here today and you have those same anxieties because at some point in your life, that was your story. And you're terrified to re-enter a community of people who, when you get vulnerable, have the power to destroy you or to build you up. i got to tell you, I didn't say this in the last service, but um, as I'm looking at the sabbatical, one of the things I want to do is reconnect my heart to the reason I even came into this thing called ministry. My dad owns a small business and makes tons of money. And there's been so many times in 17 years of ministry, I thought, I'll just go take over the family business. I'll make a ton of money. I'll plant churches all over the place with that money. But every time, God reinvigorates my heart 
You can ask my wife, the whole reason I came into being a pastor is because I wanted to create a place. I wanted to be a part of a group of people where it was okay to not be okay, but it was not okay to stay that way. And that as a group, we would love each other through it. We would challenge each other and encourage each other, and we would be open and honest and vulnerable and frail and transparent. All in the right places. Somebody once told me, Matt, everybody doesn't have to know everything, but somebody does. And that's been a great truism for my life and for yours. I get up and I share a lot of things, sometimes probably more than I should, like men in bathrooms. However, there are places in my life where I'm able to be more vulnerable, more transparent, to really lay it all on the table. And here's what's going on in my heart and my struggles and my confusions and my doubts and my temptations. And I'm so thankful for those people in my life who've come alongside me and not cast a stone of judgment, but instead have said, I love you too much to leave you where you are, brother. Let me walk with you through this season into a new one. And see, as I'm saying this, there are some of you sitting there, and there's something in your heart going, yes, I want that. How do I get it? Well, I don't have time to say everything there's to say on this subject, but I do want to give a few pointers. First, I think Peter does a really good job of telling us where to start. Take a look at these next few verses. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. In view of all this, make every effort... So there's work now, but the work has come from salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith, you, this is you, an individual, with a generous provision of moral excellence. In other words, don't just kind of be good, actually strive for moral excellence. And when, as you're striving for moral excellence, add to that knowledge. And knowledge, self-control. And self-control, patient endurance. And patient endurance, godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love for everyone. What Peter just said is the pursuit of faith. You're already secured in Christ, but now you're running a race. See, faith wasn't the finish line. Faith was the starting line. The starting line means I already win the race. That's what this means. Different than any race you've ever run. I've already won the race, but now I'm going to run the race as hard as I possibly can because I already know that I've won. The work has already been finished. I don't have to measure up. I don't have to be good enough. So now I'm going to pursue being right with God. I'm going to pursue understanding him more. I'm going to pursue all of this by enduring and becoming more godly. And as I do my work and you do your work, then what happens is we come into a relationship together and we find that there's a great place for love to grow. Where relationships get messed up is I don't do my work or you don't do your work. And so I show up into a relationship with you and I find that you are really being hard-hearted, stubborn, judgmental, or I am being confusing and cruel and mean. And all of a sudden it just breaks down. That's why the Bible doesn't leave us hanging on these teachings, but gives us some real clarity. And I think one of the major things the Bible wants us to know is this. Real community, real community means actually being with others. I remember, and I've said this before, I dated a girl in high school whose mom called herself a Christian but never stepped foot in a church anywhere. She would watch religious TV and watch a sermon occasionally on TV, and her, her statement to my then-girlfriend, who then said to me, because she was struggling through this as I was living out my faith, she said, well, I don't need to go to a church. I can get everything I need here in my house. 
except that Jesus didn't die for you and your house. Jesus died for the body of Christ. And what he was trying to create was a community of people whereby we would challenge each other and build each other up and encourage each other. And the only way to do that is actually to be with other people. And again, some of you are like, yes, please. And others of you are like, oh, it's just so scary. I love this. One of the wisest men ever to walk the face of the planet, a guy named Solomon. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, he says this. This is the case of a man who is all alone, without a child or a brother, yet who works hard to gain as much wealth as he can. But then he asks himself, who am I working for? Why am I giving up so much pleasure now? It is all so meaningless and depressing. Well, it's like he's an American today. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. You ever think about that for a minute? What Solomon's trying to get to is, is, yeah, it's a business venture, but it's life in general. If one person falls and no one's there to help him up, how sad and depressing that is. Here's the reality. I say this to the men's group that I lead all the time. At some point, you're going to have a hard season of life. There's going to be a death. There's going to be a sickness. There's going to be a business venture. There's going to be something that's going to change. A kid's going to rebel. Something's going to happen in your life. And when that happens, who will you turn to for encouragement and support? Because if you haven't invested in the relationships up to that point, then when it comes, your pain is doubled. Because now not only have you fallen, but you have no one there to pick you up. The time to invest in relationships is not when everything is falling apart. The time to invest in relationships is now. And I have actually said this before. What if the best friend you were ever going to have in this life is waiting to meet you, but you stay isolated? incapable of reaching out. That's why I believe real community, real community means being real with others in your life. Real community means being real with others in your life. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 29, Paul writes this. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. Let's just be honest for a minute. (laughs) The lie is way easier. Isn't it? How are you today? I'm good. You'll often hear me say if I see somebody and I'm not sure they're telling me the truth, is that really how you feel? Is that just what you say to the pastor in the hallway? How are you really doing today? I really am good. Okay. Is there anything going on you need to talk about? Nope. I'm good. Facing any temptations right now that you're afraid you're going to give in to? Oh, no. No. Uh-uh. I'm good. Anything I could pray for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My neighbor, oh, she's been going through this really hard season. Your neighbor, huh? That's safe. You know, it's vulnerable. Yeah, this is what I'm feeling, and this is what I'm experiencing, and this is what I'm going through. And Paul says it right there, just stop. Now look, again, not everybody has to know everything. That doesn't mean Joe Schmo grabs you in the hallway and says, hey, how you doing, brother? Like, let me just tell you, blah. Then you leave them going, ah. Anybody got to change the clothes? 
there's a safe place to do these things. I've said this before, but one of the best pieces of wisdom ever got is this. Trust takes time. It does. But listen, this mentor of mine said, Matt, if everybody starts somewhere, like even the, the clerk or whatever, the guy, person checking you out, the barista at Starbucks, they get some element of trust. I mean, you're giving them your money. You're handing them your credit card. There's an element of trust there. So everybody starts in your life, say, on a scale of 1 to 100, everybody starts at something, 25, 30, 35. Now, what people do with what you give them determines whether they go up to 40 or 45 or 50 or 55. I often talk about this with marriages that are struggling. I say, trust has been lost. How are we going to get that trust back? But what happens is, while you probably don't meet somebody who's at a 40, you tell them everything that you might tell somebody who's at a 90, what you do is you start to give them little pieces of your life and you see how they handle it. And they're not going to be perfect because they're human like you. And they've got planks that they're dealing with too. So what we do is we bathe it in grace. And we just tell a little bit of the honesty and we let them see how they handle it. Do they really care for us? Do they follow back up? Do they pray for us? Do they check in on us? Because if they do, then they win a little more. Recently, I've been selling some stuff on Facebook. Some of you teased me about that. But what God has done is he's opened doors for me to meet people that I would never have met otherwise. And there's a couple of guys that I've talked to who each have some serious junk going on in their lives. And what I do is I just pull up my Facebook messenger once in a while and just say, hey, how you been? I haven't heard from you in a while. Two different guys have both told me, do you realize you're like better than all of my friends at asking me how I'm doing? I think we live in a world that is craving this. I think every single person in this room is craving it. And what if God has saved you for the exact purpose of being this in someone else's life? Now what happens if you stop telling lies and you start telling the truth is all of a sudden there's a lot of junk out there. And what's going to happen at some point, if somebody comes to you and tells you the truth, they might tell you a truth that hurts. That's why I think Paul actually follows up that verse with this one. Take a look now at verse uh, 26. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still anger, angry. Sorry, For anger gives a foothold to the devil. Now, what Paul, I think, is doing there is like, first of all, he's not just being ADD. Like, you know me, it's like, this, like listening to Matt's sermon. Like, we're here, now we're over here, now we're over here. I think Paul actually has a point. Stop telling lies to each other. And by the way, don't get angry. See, if somebody comes to you and starts being honest, there's a tendency, right, that judgmental tendency to raise up and go, that's evil, that's wrong. Well, that's not they're saying it's not true. I mean, sin is sin and evil is evil. The Bible tells us hate what is evil and cling to what is good, but the Bible also says not don't be angry, but don't let your anger control you. Anger is a human emotion. By the way, we see it in God all the time. Anger is healthy. But channel your anger into love and service and encouragement and building each other up. So somebody comes to you and confesses something. Maybe it's something they lied about or something that you were shocked by. Rather than respond in that way, in fact, don't even let the sun go down. Resolve in your heart today, I'm going to work through this with them. Because when I came to faith, what I did is I was making a commitment to community. So we're going to get together and we're going to hash this puppy out. And we're going to do it with such urgency. We're not going to let the sun go down today before we've worked this out. How can you even do that? You drop the guard. See, with both hands open saying, I love you. I'm never going to stop loving you. There's absolutely nothing you can do to make me not love you. I'm not going to quit on you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to shame you. 
but I am going to love you enough to do what is best for you. Which might mean I can't keep your secret between just the two of us. Because I love you too much. My job is to get this big old cedar out of my eyes so that I can take the speck out of yours. And see, the problem is you think that you have a speck, but from your vantage point, you have a cedar also. And brother, sister, I love you too much to just let you stay in this unhealthy pattern. Imagine a community like that. Imagine a group of people where you can be that for each other. Imagine what that would do to a world so hungry for that kind of relationship. I imagine it all the time. It's what gets me out of bed Sunday through Saturday. It's what makes me want to show up and tell you about Jesus. Because I've seen it. And I've seen it work. And I know it's available. And I've seen it here. It just takes you wanting it for us. Take a look at the rest of what Paul says here in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. And you might be thinking, Paul, we are all over the map here. I don't think he is. I think he's still in context. I think he's saying the same thing in Christian community. Imagine if there's somebody among you and they're stealing from everybody else. Come on, isn't that what keeps us from being vulnerable? What if I decide to give of myself generously, whether it's financially or gifts or even time? What if someone takes advantage of me? What's that going to do to the whole thing that God's building? It's going to fall apart. We're going to stop trusting each other. We're going to start looking at each other sideways instead of really investing in what God's trying to do. So Paul's calling them out. Look, if you're the person taking advantage of everybody else, stop it right now. Go get a job, lazy bones. Put some money in. Help out. That way you'll build trust with everybody else. And then he concludes with these powerful words, verse 29. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Let everything you say be good and helpful and about politics so that your words will be an encouragement. And come on, church. Imagine if we, we here started at Kingsway, we're the ones who practice this. What would change in your marriage if every word out of your mouth was good and helpful for encouragement purposes? Imagine if your kid stopped hearing the word no, don't, and stop out of your mouth and started hearing yes and do. Do you know there's actually a way to redirect a child that doesn't have to do with always saying no? Instead of, hey, stop that, you can actually say, hey, let's do this this way. My friend uh, Rick Sudsbury actually taught me the power of the redo. So when my kids act in a way that's not appropriate or what they're supposed to do, we just have a redo. Whoop, hang on, redo. I literally hand them back so if they throw something because they're mad, because my kids tend to do that, I don't know where they get that, their mom. If they throw something because they're mad, <laughs> I just pick it back up, whoop, redo. I hand it back to them, let's try that again. But now I tell them what to do. So obviously you're angry. Why don't we set this down gently and just say, Dad, what you just said makes me mad. I'm teaching them how to deal with real life. In the same way I'm trying to teach you. In the same way that others have taught me. Imagine a community of people who use their words to encourage and be helpful and to build up rather than criticize, rebuke, and tear down. Let's leave my last point. My last point. Real community means 
endless encouragement for the journey that you're on. Endless encouragement. That's why the writer of the Hebrews says this, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, he says this, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Let's just stop there for a second. Imagine if every day you woke up and you didn't turn on Facebook. Let's try this tomorrow. Some of you will be easier, others will be hard. And instead, you literally ask this one question, God, reveal to me today who it is that I can encourage to do good things. You're going to make a list of just three people. And at least one of them has to be outside your family. And then you're going to look for ways all day today to just do that. Imagine what it would be like to get an email, a phone call, a text message from somebody at Kingsway tomorrow morning who goes, dude, I don't know why God put me on your heart. I just want to tell you, I absolutely love when you are encouraging. I just want to tell you to keep going, keep doing it. You write the most encouraging notes, and when I get them, it lifts my spirits. I just want to say thank you so much for your hospitality. Man, you throw a party like nobody I've ever met. And when you have us over, your home is so warm and inviting and engaging. And I just want to say thank you. Your generosity is just absolutely amazing. I watch how much time and energy and money you give to various things. And I just want to tell you, it inspires me. You keep going, sister. You just keep doing it. Brother, I just want to tell you, when you teach me the Bible, oh, it just, just makes my spirit come alive. And I just want to say thank you for using the gift that God has given you. Do you know what that does to a person's heart? Do you know what that does to lift someone from a depth of despair or temptation to feel like maybe they're not wasting their life after all? And imagine a community of 2,000 people doing this every day. That's why the writer of Hebrews goes on, verse 25, and says, and let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but to encourage one another, especially now that the day of Jesus' return is drawing near. The end is near. It's nearer today than ever before. I don't know how near, but I know it's nearer than it was yesterday. And I know this, the way it looks like the world is going, it's probably not way far off. So why not go out of your way to encourage, instead of using words to tear down or to criticize or to backbite, but to build each other up, you will create a community of people who feel safe in your presence. And when we feel safe, we get vulnerable. When we get vulnerable, we grow. Now listen, if you're sitting here right now, you're like, I want that. I want that. Well, there's only two ways it can happen. Number one, you have to take an active step to making it happen, which you could do when you leave here today. There's a TV screen. I can see it from here. It's right outside these doors and kind of a little, I don't know what to call it, tealish turquoise table. I'm terrible with colors. You're going to walk right out there and you're just going to say, I don't want to be alone anymore. I don't just want to be a believer. I want to be a believer as a part of the body of Christ. Tell me how to plug in. And they're going to take your name and information and we will follow up with you and answer that question for you. And the other thing that has to happen is other people in this room have to do it too. There's only two ways this works. It, you have to do it and others have to follow. And somebody, somebody has to be the one to go first. Because it's terrifying to be the first one to go from 35 and trust to 65 and trust. But if you never go, then nobody ever gets there. And you stay talking about the weather and politics. And there's no better way to kill a relationship than to talk weather and politics for the rest of your life. Listen, right now, if you're somebody in your heart, you know you need to be more vulnerable about something going on in you. I want to pray over you that God would literally bring a name to your mind. And that as I pray that, God will sink deep in your heart 
and pursue you to go after that person until you do. If no name comes to mind, that's because we need to connect you to somebody for you. You don't know anybody yet, and that's our job. Now, let me pray this prayer over you. Father in heaven, God, I thank you that I get to be the pastor of this great church. I thank you for an eldership who loves me and my family enough to invest this in me and a church who's patient enough to allow us to take some time to just let you pour into us as we pour into others. And Father, I pray in the same way you're going to build up and restore and heal my life in so many powerful ways I don't know yet, would you do that right now and the people sitting here and listening online? Oh God, we want to be a transformed people. We want to be a people who are moved by grace to both give and receive grace. So, Father, I pray right now for us. God, I pray for those who are hiding in shame and fear of something going on in their lives. God, that you would give them a name, a name right now, somebody they need to talk to, to be open and vulnerable and get some help. And God, I want to pray right now for all of us to reach beyond ourselves and not just make faith about us, but to make faith about others so that we could become the church you intended for us to be all along. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.